You're listening to the Joyful Warrior Podcast with yours truly, Tiffany Justice. Join us as we talk about the issues that are impacting you and your family in America today. Let's get started. Hello, Joyful Warriors, and welcome to the Joyful Warrior Podcast. Today, uh, we are very lucky to invite two men to join us, Andrew Gutman and Paul Rossi, um, both gentlemen who have experience uh, in education as uh, one a parent, one a teacher, and and both have expressed some concerns uh, fairly publicly um, in the past uh, year and a half um, regarding uh, what's been happening in public school, excuse me, in private schools in the United States. And, and so they just wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, <clears throat> and it was called, uh, excuse me, Inside the Woke Indoctrination Machine. These gentlemen watched over 100 hours of leaked video from inside the National Association of Independent Schools uh, work uh, training. Um, and uh, we're going to chat with them a little bit about it today. So welcome, Paul and Andrew. How are you? Great. Thanks for having us, Tiffany. Yeah. It's great to be here. Yeah, likewise, Tiffany. So, Paul, I'm going to start with you. You were a teacher at, at Grace Church High School in Manhattan, and you wrote a piece that was featured on Barry Weiss's Substack, Common Sense, and you said that you refused to stand by while your students were indoctrinated and that the students in your class were afraid to challenge the repressive ideology that was ruling the mm -hmm. school, and that's why you were speaking out. So if you want to just kind of, for people who aren't familiar with your story, just give us a little bit of insight um, into your experiences as a, as a teacher um, at Grace uh, School. Sure. Uh, I had been a teacher there for about, it was my ninth year last year. And uh, we had, from the beginning, been a very progressive school, I guess I would say. Not, not, not really anything close to what it became, but even for New York schools, it was, it was more on the, you know, quote unquote, progressive side. Uh, and then in 2015, the school changed its mission to become an explicitly anti-racist school uh, or so-called anti-racist school, uh, which basically meant more racism. Uh, and we started to see, you know, I started to notice pushing into the curriculum and to my own uh, small advisory group of students, uh, a certain type of DEI, it was you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion programming um, that started to become explicitly racialized in terms of having kids' identities um, become the focus, their own personal identities, and then making assumptions about those identities and segregating them according to those identities for, for the purposes of this programming. And so that really troubled me. And um, I really came to a head in February of, of last year. I was um, asked to attend a mandatory segregated, racially segregated Zoom meeting with white students and faculty in one room and in one Zoom room and, and BIPOC students and faculty in another. BIPOC stands for Black and Indigenous People of Color. And uh, I questioned the facilitator's uh, use of slides uh, that it painted all the white students and faculty as operating with certain uh, categories that were called white supremacist culture. So when I, I started to ask questions at the meeting, which caused a, a, a real brouhaha in the school, and there were meetings about the meeting, and I got called into the carpet, called on the carpet for that. 
and it really led to this bizarre situation where the whole school and all my colleagues were kind of turned against me, although I was still teaching my classes and trying to connect with students when other teachers and faculty were being told that we're, we're telling those students, you know, that I was um, evidencing white fragility and all these various things, which I think might be familiar to, to, to your listeners, to people in, in the Moms for Liberty chapters. And I, it really came to the head when a student approached me, he was very afraid to be, even be seen with me to give me support because he was worried about his his own teacher retaliating against him for that. He was concerned about the cameras. Uh, so I decided to write an article uh, about the whole devolution of the school, really, uh, and, and what, had, what it had come to. Uh, and Barry Weiss published it um, on her Substack, which uh, went viral and, and you know, it, it had a real impact uh, and then when the school challenged my allegations, I published a recording from the head of school where he basically agreed with me and said that the school had been demonizing white children. Um, and uh, that caused even more problems for the school. Uh, interestingly enough, that head of school is still at his job today. Mm -hmm. uh, he has one more year. He's going to retire at the end of this year, and then he'll be replaced by the assistant head of school, who was really instrumental in in putting the screws to me. So um, I, I can't be too sanguine about the prospects at that school uh, in, in terms of any meaningful changes coming about. And that's one of the things that I think both Andrew and I've had trouble doing, which is, um, you know, it's very difficult to make progress in these private schools because they're really not beholden to the same laws as public schools. So we maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I, I just want to go back to one of the things you said that you were really struck when that student came to you and knocked on your door. And I remember reading in your article, he was, you know, looking both ways and, and just, you know, the idea that, you know, his thought process or being able to be open and honest with a teacher and have a conversation, um, you know, that he was so scared that he was going to be called out for, um, you know, questioning some of the teaching. It was very interesting um, to hear that. And I know you wrote that your first obligation was to your students. And um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, Andrew, mm -hmm. I know some of the things that Paul has shared, you also experienced, but as a parent, um, your daughter went to, is it Brearley? Yeah, Brearley School, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's an all, that was an all-girls school, um, yep. very elite school in, in, in uh, New York. And, and so, um, I know you wrote, and, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase, I'm going to read from um, your original letter. You said that if the Brearley administration was truly concerned about so-called equity, it would be discussing the cessation of admissions preferences for legacies, siblings, and those families with especially deep pockets. If the administration was genuinely serious about diversity, it would not insist on the indoctrination of its students and their families to a single mindset most reminiscent of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And so tell us, your daughter's attending this school, Andrew, and, and what is her experience like at this school? What is the teaching? How do you see the teaching changing? At yeah, so, so sure. So the, really it's all girls K through 12 school. My daughter had been there since kindergarten. Uh, and this year was, uh, that year was, she was in sixth grade. And, you know, we saw what we, you know, the DEI stuff, anti-racist stuff, what broadly we call, you know, critical race theory, you know, seep in a tiny bit over the years. Now, I not, not knowing what I know now, I recognize what they were doing over those probably all six or seven years, but nothing 
concerning, nothing to the point where we thought she wouldn't finish, you know, 12th grade there and go all the way through 13 years. And then summer of summer of um, 2020, George Floyd, BLM and uh, the black at Instagram accounts, which almost every private school had this social media thing where alum, black alums of, of these schools had uh, put their grievances out on Instagram. Um, that summer, basically everything changed. And uh, as Paul said, the mission of the schools completely changed from doing the things that you traditionally want a school to do, which is teaching math and science and history and English and training intellectually courageous kids or girls in my daughter's case, to training activists, to training social justice warriors. Um, and this, what they called anti-racism initiatives, again, what you know most people now call CRT, was infused in every single aspect of the school. Um, and my daughter's school went so much further than almost any other school. There's a handful of schools that went really, really this far, where we had to, or we were supposed to sign a pledge, a community agreement saying not only would we support their anti-racism initiatives in the classroom, but we would help teach them in the home and we refused to sign that. Uh, we had to do as parents mandatory anti-racism training to 90 minute sessions for parents. So this is as far as the school went. And, you know, my daughter saw this, you know, in the school, again, infused in every aspect of the curriculum. This isn't just history or English. This is in art and music and science. Um, and we you know, talked to a lot of parents that year from the beginning of the year, from from you know Labor Day beginning of the year. And I know, you know more than half the parents were very unhappy with what was going on in school. And we can talk to them. And again, this is COVID, so nobody's getting together. But, you know, we could not get other parents to speak up. Everyone would say, yeah, I should write an email. I should call the head of school. I should talk to somebody. And, and almost nobody did. And then finally, we made the decision after realizing we're not going to get people to speak up on this um, and realizing that this is not the education we want for our daughter. And our daughter said the same thing. This was a joint decision. The three of us, my wife, my, my, my daughter, and myself, um, we decided not to re-enroll her. And when we decided not to re-enroll her, um, I said, you know what, someone's got to do something and try to get people to speak up. So I sent the letter, I mailed the letter to all of the Brearley families. And you and so did you and Paul know each other before this? No, no, no. Do you realize that you, Paul, published your letter on uh, on April 13th? And, and Andrew, you sent your letter out on April 13th of 2021. Like both of these things happened on the same day. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I knew it was like within a day or two. I didn't realize it was the same day. Yeah, Me it's either. the same yeah, day. So, really so fast forward. So that's April 13th, 2021. Yeah. It's February now, 2022. A year later, the two of you have come together and you have written in for the Wall Street Journal inside the woke indoctrination machine. And I'm just going to read a, a little bit of it quickly. And then I want to dive into to what you learned, because I know you've both written that the leaked videos that you had to watch, they serve as, as somewhat of like a Rosetta Stone for deciphering the DEI playbook. And I think it's so interesting. There's so much to learn from both of you. But you write, last spring, we exposed how two elite independent schools in New York had become corrupted by a divisive obsession with race, helping start the national movement against critical race theory. Schools apply this theory under the guise of diversity, equity, and inclusion programming. Until now, however, neither of us fully grasped the dangers of this ideology or the true motives of its practitioners. The goal of DEI isn't only to teach students about slavery or encourage courageous conversations about race. It is to transform schools totally and reshape society radically. 
So you guys watched over a hundred hours, fun times. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how you broke that down. But it, but over the past month, you've watched over a hundred hours of leaked videos from 108 workshops that were held virtually for the National National Association of Independent Schools People of Color Conference. These are workshops that aren't norm that are not open to the public, right? So when you say they're leaked, like how did you guys get access to them? You don't have to be specific about that and call anybody out. I'm just curious, were you able, did you have someone on the inside or are you able, you know, how, how did you get access? Yeah, it was, a, you know, the, the conference is directed at teacher training. So, I mean, it's, it's built as kind of a safe space for uh, BIPOC educators, but also white allies can also attend. Um, but, they, you know, we, there were uh, multiple um, people had registered and sent us uh, information. So uh, it was actually from multiple sources. And we watched the videos, uh, all of the videos, more than once, I think, um, and really referring to it and making sure we had all our, you know, a complete understanding of what was going on. Well, it's um, good to hear that there are some people on the inside who are also recognizing that some of this may be an issue. Yeah, it's quite an expensive conference. It was $1,000, I think, to to attend that's most of, a lot of it is subsidized by these schools um and they many of the nis schools will send multiple people to the conference so it's uh it's quite a and when, when you have six thousand six thousand people attending it's quite um it's quite well funded absolutely so and keep in mind i just want to add normally this conference is in person so we would never right. have been able to do that but but because of covid this was online well, good that, you know, some so things. Just like a lot of parents who, you know, oversaw what was going on in their schools because of Zoom school, we were able to see this because this was online. Yeah, these are the COVID lemonade moments that I talk about sometimes, right, that we've been able to, mm-hmm. to get access to things and be able to see what's really happening behind the scenes. So you write that the path to remake schools, and I'll start with you, Andrew, the path to remake schools begins with the word diversity, which means much more than simply increasing the number of students and faculty of color. So what exactly did you see in some of these videos that, you know, what should parents know about the way that DEI experts are urging schools to classify people by identities? So, yeah, I mean, the play, what we, the way we frame this article is that there's a playbook here. And the playbook goes by the five, you know, we always talk about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but that the playbook is really now five words, and it's diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity, and justice. And that's what we wrote about here. And, you know, it, it's all those five words mean something very, very different than they say they mean, or than the schools want you to believe that they mean. Now, uh, so I'll start with diversity since you asked. In, in a lot of these videos, and even including on the NAIS website, they justify diversity work or DEI work with some vague references to studies that show that diverse groups do better. And when they say that, what they're really looking at studies in corporate workplaces that show that, you know, bringing a bunch of people in a room with different ideas and they tend to be more creative or more productive. They're, these are very weak studies. But even, even if they're right, what that what these studies imply is that you know, diversity is good because people bring different ideas to the table. But this is exactly the opposite of the kind of diversity that they really want. They want a, a total intellectual monoculture. They do not want different ideas. They want this single idea, this anti-racist, the CRT type idea. So that's where I would start with diversity. It's the opposite of what they what they mean. But what they're really trying to do, they're trying to increase the number of BIPOC students 
And then the more important part is what they're trying to do. They are indoctrinating them um, into saying that the system is bad and the system needs to be torn down. And that's when we get to the equity and justice part. But the way they do that, they do that in these segregated affinity groups. And they do that through this psychological mechanism of harm, of indoctrinating these kids that they're being harmed by the system. Um, and, and that's really the way that they do it. So they, they, they everything in, in a lot of these videos is about how these kids are being harm there's violence there's so many um different types of violence intergenerational violence and curriculum violence that we talk about um so so that's really what diversity you know all those concepts i just mentioned what kind of diversity means in in reality very different than what they think that they want you to think it means and we're seeing yeah, that I, diversity I, work happen in public schools where children are being segregated um, and even parent groups are being segregated um, so that there are different meetings for different groups of people at the school. And it just seems to be very divisive. I'm not sure exactly how separating people into different groups is going to encourage more conversation and more uh, collaboration. I, I would just add to that, yeah, that to everything Andrew said, um, that the, the mechanism, sort of the platform for this is also around identity. So um, there is considered to be an authentic politicized set of experiences and opinions that are attached to your social identity. So your, your racial identity, your gender identity, to, to be considered an authentic opinion or experience, it has to be politicized in a particular way. So it winds up being a kind of intellectual monoculture within these groups. So there's a black way of seeing the world. There's a authentically Latinx way of seeing the world, authentically fem, like a woman way of seeing the world. Um, and if individuals within those groups deviate, they can be excluded. Um, you know, they can, they can, out, but those types of exclusions are okay. I see. Um, That's interesting. And so <laughs> I'm not sure what to say about that. I mean, you, we, we say that and, and you think about the fact that, you know, how ridiculous to think that just because you share a gender with someone or a race with someone that you're going to think the same way about everything in the world. Um, you know, we, I think we all know that isn't true yet. This idea that we all have to think the same way is, is, it's really concerning. And when it's happening in schools, it's called indoctrination. So, um, you write that the, the next step in a school's transformation is inclusion, that schools must integrate this diversity, equity, inclusion work into every aspect of the school, every facet of the curriculum, and it must all be evaluated through an anti-bias, anti-racist, anti-oppressive lens. So what does it mean to, to be inclusive at a school, according to the National Association of Independent Schools? Yeah, you, I mean, I, mean, I can start. It's sort of what, you know, what you read, which is it, it means that. So, so you've got you, you're segregated in affinity groups, you know, the, the by identity and you've indoctrinated them into thinking they're being harmed by the institution. Well, now you have to get everybody else on board. Okay. Um, and that's really what it means for it to be an inclusive uh, school. And it's not just everybody on board, although that's part of it. So this means in every aspect of the curriculum it means in all grades that's why there's a video all about how to do this in kindergarten um and the, we use a quote that you know we even even kindergartners are natural social justice warriors in fact she even says in the video this this kindergarten teacher even better if it starts in preschool right as early as well, you possible. cash in on their inherent uh inherent um empathy for each other right they're they're kindergartners mm -hmm. yeah it's mm -hmm. lovely yes mm -hmm. yeah so this is where you know so in, in you know paul saw this in the school in his nine years as a teacher you know i 
as a parent, it's hard to know what's going on in the school. Um, I'm lucky that my daughter, this really ramped up, you know, for my daughter when she was in middle school. But for these kids now, this is absolutely happening as early as kindergarten and in some cases even earlier in preschool. And so this inclusiveness, the, again, this has to be in in all aspects of the school. This isn't just, uh, you know, let's change the history curriculum and teach more black history. This isn't just let's change the, the literature curriculum and put a few more books by, you know, minority or women authors. This is everything. This isn't, you know, science. We have a video on on how you integrate this into science curriculum. Um, there's some people that talk about how to do this in math curriculum. There's there's a, a couple of videos that we didn't even talk about in the, in the um, in the piece about yeah how do you change the grading system to make a more inclusive grading system. They talk about library audits. We reference that you have to have the books in the library be inclusive. Well, what does that mean? That means censorship. Um, and so mm -hmm. in, in, you know, and, and Paul, you jump in, but I mean, you know, inclusive means every aspect of the school has to adopt this anti-racist, anti-bias um, lens or perspective. Yeah, and 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 there really is a, a, a quota in a sense. Like when you when you develop the reading for a class or or a syllabus or something, there are really fixed quotas. Like you can't have too many white men. So Shakespeare is, you know, that's that counts against you uh, because now you have to have something else that balances it, which is um, by a BIPOC author or something. But the, but really the the, the evaluative. Um, you know, the evaluative uh, criterion for what's included is really just on the most superficial elements. And there's there's no sense of, you know, that a person's experience or a child's experience can can transcend these divisions. It's actually like, well, we have to if you don't have a teacher that looks like you, well, then they won't learn. Um, so it really is just capitulating to the most crude racial tribal um, ways of knowing somehow um that that are being used as as the premise so paul you i i remember you telling a story and, and i know you've written about it as well about wanting to bring in um different authors black authors mm -hmm. and because some of the authors didn't share um the opinions of your school that they were kind of invalidated as as being an option for your students can you talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, sure. And so that, that goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about you know, there's an authentic way of being black, say. Um, there's a, authentic positions that you must hold ideological positions. And so my students um, during, you know, shortly, um, you know, after George Floyd uh, and in the fall, actually it was the fall after George Floyd, we were still talking about it. They were talking about um, the riots and the protests and, and they, they had told me they, you know, I didn't, I didn't uh, assume anything. They were like, well, it's, we, we're kind of in an ideological bubble here. It'd be nice to get other opinions on what, on, on, on what's going on, uh, on racial issues specifically. And I said, well, what about, uh, I, I, I was a fan of Professor Glenn Lowry at Brown, an economist, you know, happens to be black who had a different take on these issues than, than what they were getting in, in, at Grace. So I, you know, I knew that it would be possibly um, controversial for me to introduce it without approval. So, you know, perhaps I should have you know, asked for forgiveness rather than permission, but I went with the permission route and I asked my head of school, you know, would it be okay if I shared this article in the city journal? Um, my students are asking for it. And, you know, part of the, part of the uh, mission of the school is to actually have student led learning, which is 
which is a whole other thing. And no, he he rejected that idea. He said it would confuse and inflame the students if they heard a conservative point of view from a black professor. Uh, even if that professor is at an Ivy League school that may that they may aspire to attend. Uh, so he doesn't sound very that I inclusive actually, to me. I right? No, no, not at all. So this is where it, this is where it all breaks down, and the hypocrisy is apparent. So it's really not about opinions. It's about um, a superficial type of diversity that actually is hiding a, that intellectual monoculture. And so he he said, no. Why why don't you give them a white conservative view on race so that they won't have to ask themselves, you know, essentially they won't have to ask them tough questions about, well, you know, this person's of a different race and like they're, they're, they're saying what we expect them to say that, that was really the, what needed to be maintained. Um, so, you know, the, I, that really bothered me. I mean, that really sunk down very deep and, and, and gave me a lot of soul searching. And I wrote several emails back to him that I never sent because I, you know, I, I knew that he was, it, it was, it wasn't going to amount to anything. And we'd had long talks about this and I knew where he was coming from. So, um, it, it is, it is corrosive to viewpoint diversity. It's corrosive to learning. It's, it, it, it teaches children that there's really one right way, um, and one right opinion. Uh, and that must, you know, that if you have someone who is of a minoritized group or some group that's supposedly an oppressed, well, then everyone who belongs to that group is supposed to think the same way. So you, uh, in the article, in, in, in the, the piece, the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, you guys write about Victor Shin, who's a co-chairman of the People of Color Conference. And he says, he, they're talking about belonging. And then it, it talks about that, um, this, this idea of calling out that faculty and students can use this, this technique uh, called calling out to shut mm -hmm. down conversations uh, by immediately interrupting speakers and letting them know that their words and actions are unacceptable and won't be tolerated, uh, which doesn't seem very inclusive or to foster a sense of belonging. But Victor Shin says, sometimes you got to say, maybe this is not the right school for you. I've said that a lot this year. He's an assistant head of school. So in one, in one moment, they're saying to you, you know, inclusivity and belonging and diversity is important. And then in the next, they're saying, but maybe you don't belong here if you don't agree with us. So how do they kind of, is there ever, you know, is there ever a conversation about some of the, the hypocrisy here? Or is it just no, being accepted? No. I, ideologues can't acknowledge hypocrisy because <laughs> the whole framework would fall apart. Uh, no, I mean, and when we get, if we get to equity, when we, I'm sure we will in a minute, when we start talking about what they consider, you know, white supremacy culture, you'll see the hypocrisy again. I'll save that for when we, when we get there, but you know, belonging is sort of my favorite of the five words in that it's sort of the trickiest because it does mean, I mean, it, it's such a nice sounding word. We want everyone to belong. Of course. And what it means. And this is, this was the one that I'm, I, you know, I, Paul, Paul, who had seen this on the inside as a teacher, you know, had a much better understanding of a lot of these things me as a, just a dad you know random dad who kind of just picked this up you know overhearing what a 12 year old girl is telling her you know telling her dad a little bit um you know didn't fully appreciate a lot of these things but you know watching these hundred hours of videos you know i started to understand what was really going on so belonging was the one where i said you know okay now i get it and, and what they really mean by belonging is in order for BIPOC students or faculty and faculty to belong, this has to be a safe space. Well, what is a safe space? A safe space 
is one where there can be no dissent. Okay, there can be nothing said that makes a BIPOC student or faculty feel uncomfortable, or for that matter, any other identity group that they favor feel uncomfortable. And and this is the really, really, you know, this this is where it starts to get really, really frightening. Because what is the school supposed to be? I mean, the school's supposed to be where you can, you know, you, you can give your opinion, you can have discussions, uh, and you don't have to be worried about what you say, at least to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Exactly the opposite of what they mean here by belonging. Well, this I'm, is the way they shut down free speech. And I'm free trying talk. to rectify this in my mind too, because you know, Moms for Liberty, moms across the country have been asking for there to be transparency and some accountability in, in the way that some of the yep. books have been chosen across the country in libraries, right? There seems to have mm-hmm. been, it seems to, a few people have, more than a few people have dropped the ball as far as making sure that there isn't um, obscene, uh, explicit sexual material in our, our public school libraries. And and this idea, you know, so I'm reading this and I'm like, well, belonging means that a school must be a safe space, um, prohibiting any speech or activity regardless of intent that a BIPOC student or faculty member might perceive as harmful. Well, you have, you know, hundreds of parents, more than that, thousands of parents across the country saying, well, what's going on here? What's going on here? We're concerned about this. This is really antithetical to the teaching in my home. This is not the way. And, And yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of concern for their concern. Yeah, no, there's only could yeah. you go. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, um, the premise that they're proceeding from is essentially that that white supremacists, uh, heteronormative, which is just heterosexual, uh, cis culture, patriarchal culture. Um, it's a lot of jargon, but it basically just means, um, you know, all all of the essential categories are so dominant in society that to be inclusive means to say, well, we're going to bring in you know, everything else which is which is repressed or minoritized. And then and then, you know, that there's no need to to have those other voices or even parents who care about the innocence of their children protected because to them, alternative sexuality and, and gender, uh, alternative gender identities and those things are marginalized to the point where they can pack the libraries with all that stuff and, and it won't do any, it'll actually be good for them. That's the way they're thinking about it. Uh, so the belonging of those things and, and, the, and the discomfort that many parents will feel with about, you know, explicit sexual material is actually okay because the, the oppressor groups need to sort of lean into their discomfort or it's, they actually need to be kept in a state of discomfort. Right. So there what is what is it's a complete double standard where you you if you uh, happen to fall into this bucket of the oppressor group, well, then your belong, your sense of belonging, your sense of comfort is actually the enemy. And they talk explicitly about um, the importance of keeping uh, dominant cultures in, in a state of discomfort. Yeah, um, I listened so, to yeah. George Johnson, who wrote The Boys Aren't All Blue, and he spoke recently in an interview in, that I also participated in an interview. I didn't get to speak with him. I'd still like to debate him. If he wants to have this conversation, I'd be happy to. Um, but he talked about, you know, the idea of, of innocence, the innocence of children, and that, you know, white children have for too long been, you know, kept as, as innocent in our society, and they must be you know, I guess exposed to, they should be exposed to all kinds mm. of things because 
I guess it's good for them. I, I'm not really sure. Poor George, unfortunately, was molested by a family member when he was um, a child. And so, you know, while I feel horribly for the robbing of his innocence, I don't necessarily think traumatizing every child with that same experience is, is the path forward for us as a country. Um, so the idea that we want to make some kids feel bad in school and, and, and in order to, I guess, maybe make other kids feel better just doesn't, I, I don't think it sits well with most parents in the country. They don't understand it. Um, and so to see it happening in private schools and to know that it's kind of moving its way and, and is in many of our public schools is concerning. So you say that all of these things, diversity, inclusion, belonging, lead us to the uh, primary objectives of the DEI work, which is equity and justice. So what does that mean exactly? What, what does equity mean um, in, in our schools? So yeah, I'll go and then Paul, you yeah, go um, it, 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 to me, to me, equity is the the goal for most of these schools. Um, they call it equity work. Some of them go as far as justice, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But um, it, what what equity really means to me is this is burning down the system. This is literally burning down Western society because what they do is they say we have to, in order to have inclusion and belonging, we have to create a safe space we have to eradicate white supremacy culture. Now, if you say that, you think, okay, well, we got to get the KKK out of our schools. Yeah, which but I no, by 100, 100% agree with, by the way, right? You yeah. know, I mean, the KKK yeah, sure. shouldn't be in any of our schools. Correct. Right, okay. I, the KKK should not be in our schools. Correct. But that is not what they are saying. Because if you look at how they define white supremacy culture, and this is something that came up in, in many of the videos. And, and I want to take, you know, just a slight step back. Every one of these private schools, the, the NIAS and the presenters, they call them PWIs, predominantly white institutions. They use that all the time when you go back to your PWI. So this is embedded in everything that they do to think of these as white institutions, even if they're not, for that matter. So when they say, well, what is white supremacy culture? Right. It is things like perfectionism, punctuality, worship of the written word, uh, objectivity, getting the right answer right? Grading, frankly, uh, liberalism in the small L, which really means freedom, capitalism, individualism, and I'm, you know, I'm just, just a handful of them. These are the things that they want to tear down. Um, and then we have a quote in the piece of, of a, one of the really crazy women, you know, basically saying we need to, you know, decolonize Western culture. We need to eradicate Western thought, um, which is encompassed in all these, in all these ideas. Uh, and this this is literally what they are teaching the teachers to teach the kids. Uh, so this is what the kids are learning, that white culture is basically everything good or almost everything good about our country and Western society and the reason that we're prosperous and the reason that we're free. This is all bad. This is all in need of eradication. This, this is really, really frightening stuff. And, I, and I'll get you talk about hypocrisy before and then I'll let jump, I'll Paul jump in. But, you know. We, we talked about it in belonging, creating a safe space. The, the key to doing that is, is they make you fearful of these microaggressions. Well, what's one of the microaggressions is uh, stereotyping, right? If I say, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, black people are, are good at sports, right? That's a microaggression. I can't say that. Well, this is this is stereotyping <laughs> to say white culture is capitalism, to say white culture is individualism or perfectionism or punctuality, right? But they don't acknowledge that stereotype that stereotype's okay 
right? Because this is the oppressor group. Well, I'm um, trying anyway, to understand why a school wouldn't want children to be punctual or nice. I'm reading this. Perfectionism, yeah, punctuality, oh, that's urgency. a good one. P mm -hmm. PWIs, there's a, there's a great quote we didn't put in it. PWIs, uh, they're notorious for um, um, a, a systemic niceness, which is a bad mm -hmm. thing. It's yeah. not. It's bad that to be nice. It's bad to be nice. Right. Okay. So, okay. yeah, so I'm so, like, sh so I'm reeling right now, Paul, because I'm thinking to myself, like, so if, if we're not teaching children to be punctual or to want to, I mean, perfectionism is a bit much, but, you know, it's good to get the right answer. So let's stick with that for a while. You know, objectivity, progress, um, individualism. If we're not teaching these things as important principles to children in school, and, and I don't think this has anything to do with race, I, I'm really struggling to understand here. What, what's the yeah. end goal? Yeah, the end goal is essentially to, to tear apart, as Andrew was saying, the very elements of conscientiousness and care and, and individual development and all the things um, that correspond with functional society essentially and by by freezing it and polarizing it and racializing it and saying you know these things are bad and what are they putting in its place is interesting um and that's when i think we get to the justice part which is this um which is about essentially establishing a kind of collectivist morality where which functions at this level this very um animalistic level of just pleasure and pain and that's where the harm comes in. So I, and, and I saw this in, in a lot of the kindergarten, uh, kindergarten through fourth grade, where impact is greater than intent is, is one of the maxims that they like to use a lot. And that is essentially this idea that if somebody feels any pain or discomfort that has, you've caused, uh, no matter what your intention, then it's up to you to, to repair that by reparations, and they will use the word reparations. And so it does, you know, this idea that, you know, sometimes to do the right thing, it, it, it's going to hurt, and maybe it's going to cause some pain. Maybe telling the truth is sometimes painful, because the truth sometimes hurts. That's really not, um, that's seen as harmful. Uh, and so you're, they're, they're teaching kids to react to other people's complaint of harm in a you know in a very uh, evidence-free way i would say like there's not any need for the person who claims harm to even justify the nature of the harm they can simply claim there's harm so whether explain, that's a word yeah. or something they you know something they they feel bad if they hear something so in this you know that can that can be characterized as violence uh through this training and so you know, that really, you know, clarified for me what's going on in my classrooms when my students who were, uh, you know, taught this by my colleagues would, you know, they really couldn't have an open discussion because not only did you have to consider the impact of what you were saying to everyone in the room, you know, with the lowest common denominator of whoever could be offended, but if you did misstep, well, then that your your statement could be characterized as a violent act. So under those conditions, you know, no one's going to deviate from the script of what is acceptable to say. So, in uh, a, so, so explain to me what this means when it comes to grading and, and achievement in school, because kids go to school to learn, 
to, to grow mm. and, and, and to learn. And, and you hope that they're, I hope my children are challenged in school um, academically. And so what happens if you're a teacher and your kids are learning that punctuality isn't important and that perfectionism isn't important um, and niceness, I guess, isn't. It, it, sometimes it is. I'm still confused about that one. But and what if you have mm-hmm. to give a bad grade, Paul? I mean, are you allowed to give kids a, well, a, a poor to, grade? Yeah. or? Well, you know, you really have to um, consider the harm that that grade might cause because, it, you know, there you really – there's such an emphasis and this is not all bad there's an but there is a real emphasis on motivation and engagement okay and not discouraging kids which is you, you don't want to discourage the kids but sometimes you you have to be you have to be objective i'm using a bad word here but you have to be objective about what the student knows and doesn't know so that you can help them improve right and there's nothing wrong with with spending more time with a student who needs extra help i mean i did that all the time um but uh, with equity grading, you're getting it's gone way too far. So with equity grading, you know you you shouldn't give. You know you should only grade, say, uh, math. You know I, you typically with math, you know if you have fifty or sixty percent, well you're still failing. Well they want to get rid of that and they want to say well you know if you know, you know if you know thirty percent, well that should be like maybe a, a C, right? Because at least you know thirty percent and you want to put a positive spin on it so that the student is motivated to learn more. Uh, Maybe you don't count homework because it's putting too much stress on the student to do homework. Maybe um, you only average, you only count the the grade at the end of the quarter instead of averaging all the grades along the way because, you know, maybe if the student struggled the beginning but they know everything by the end, well then maybe they deserve the same grade as someone that actually did excellent work the whole way through. Uh, you know, because, of course, this is uh, incredibly demotivating to the student who has done very well the whole way through and sees that this one of their peers who did nothing, um, you know, up until the end suddenly turns, you know, turns in all their work and, and does fine. Uh, so it, there is a there's a there's a fellow called Joe whose name is Joe Feldman, who has a an outfit whose name I forget, but he is going to be leading a seminar for NIAS on equity grading. This is the this is the next big thing that's coming down the road. Uh, and many schools are already doing pilot projects with this. So, um, you know, I find this really bad. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think that there's compelling evidence that it works. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd Definitely want to put that on everyone's radar. Look out for this because it's coming to a I'm, school near you. I'm trying to understand, you know, the, here are parents, they're paying 60 grand plus a year for their kids to go to school. And I, I would I, I would think there would be some expectations for what parents want their children to take away from that investment, right? I mean, is they it- want. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, I'll, take gonna take this. I'll take this one. <laughs> Well, well, I, actually, I'm curious if it falls, you know, from a teacher perspective, having dealt with parents, but for the most part, it's not 100 percent, but it's it's very high percentage. You send your kids to a to a sixty thousand dollar year prestigious school. The most important thing they want out of that is a ticket to whatever, you know, Ivy League university you're going to get out of that or equivalent. Right. It's the degree, the the product of school used to be generations ago education we want you to learn certain things 
it is no longer education. A product of a school, especially a fancy private school, is a ticket to Harvard or whatever university. Um, secondarily, they just want the status of saying my kid goes to one of these fancy schools because um, there's so much money in a place like New York. You can buy anything. You can go on fancy vacations and have a big you know, apartment, but not everybody can get their kids into these schools. So that becomes a status symbol. Now, again, I'm stereotyping. I'm generalizing. There are a small percentage of families there like we were that were really there for the education. Um, and, and those families are leaving like we did. They're upset. Uh, the Asian community, uh, for, again, stereotyping, they're upset. Uh, they tend to supplement outside of school all the things that kids are not getting in school. Although, you know, as, as they water down math curriculums, they're, they're doing more math curriculums outside of, you know, math work outside of school and, and things like that. Um, but that's, you know, that's the world of sort of $60,000 a year private schools. It, unfortunately, it's really not that much about the education anymore. Paul, I yeah, want to hear and your I, take I, on it, and then yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would. I think that my sense is that Andrew's largely correct. You know, we there are parents that care, but not enough to do something about it. So I would have these parent conferences, and parents would come in, and um, they would show on a, you know generally very little curiosity um, about the quality of the education and whether the A's that the, their child are getting were real A's or their bees were real bees. Um, they were, you know, they would intervene and, and sort of make a show about, you know, wh whether if the child wasn't doing as well as they felt they could. Um, but I didn't really get the sense that, that the learn it was about the learning, uh, to be frank. Um, I think for public school cases, parents, yes, yeah, I mean, no. you know, we're talking about school choice a lot. Um, Paul, you joined us in Tennessee. We had an event with uh, Carol Swain's Be the People Project where we talked about um, Martin Luther King and the dream in, in 2022 and what, what's going on in, in some of the public schools around the country. We had a lot of people sharing concern. Um, and one of the things that we talked about a little bit was the fact that, you know, if you have an issue with your public schools because you do not believe that they are um, – you know, unfolding the full potential of your child, what are you to do? And people say mm -hmm. a lot of times school choice. And I know you were there and you said, well, but wait a second, because a lot of the private yeah. schools, right, are, are, are woke now too. And so just this fact and idea, you know, you can spend $60,000 a year for your kid to go to school somewhere and they still may not be learning what they need to know well, to be successful in life. It's pretty concerning, right? Yeah, what are, it's, what it's, other options are there? Yeah, I mean, let me, let me, I'll say a couple of quick things. Number one, it's incredibly concerning. Uh, number two, there are almost no options anywhere. This is in privates. This is in publics. This is in a lot of religious schools. This is this is everywhere uh, across the country. Um, it is worse in privates. And the reason that it is worse generally in privates is that they have all this money and they have all this money to pay these fancy DEI consultants and have mm -hmm. not one head of DEI, but a team of six or eight or 10 or 12. Yeah. Um, and to send all their teachers to DEI training and these kind of conferences. So it is worse in private school. Uh, also for the fact that I think Paul alluded to earlier that um, it, it, it's harder to fight in private school. You can't, you're worried about getting your, your kid kicked out. So parents are silenced. Um, and I want to make one other point and then I'll stop talking, which is, you're fine. I, like I, I do want, <laughs> no, I, I really do want people to understand this. And, and this is, you know, we, we had a thousand words, you know, Wall Street Journal, and it was sort of hard to get everything across that we wanted to. Um, we were talking about private schools. And in this conversation, we're mostly talking about private schools. 
everything that is happening in the private schools happens first in the private schools and then flows down to the public schools. Why? Again, because they have all this money. They can bring in these DEI mm-hmm. consultants and hold these conferences. And these things are developed, right? These, we we, we kind of had the word, you know, cutting edge DEI practices. They're developed in the private schools. And then these consultants go and they bring them to the public schools. So this is in the public schools, but this is sort of the cutting edge stuff now. This will be everything we're talking about, if it's not already in the public school systems all across the country in 50 states, will be. Because, you know, the, the national teachers unions are bringing this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, and this is in the graduate education schools and it has been in the graduate ed schools for decades. So this is all coming to public school. So I want people to understand that this is not just a $60,000 a year private school problem. You guys have a quote at the end of your, of your piece and you, it was from a teacher and she said that DEI was another thing to put on the plate. And absolutely now it is the plate on which everything sits. So what does that mean? I mean, it's mind blowing. What does that mean, Paul, for edu- for the future of education? I mean, teachers were struggling before, especially just through COVID. We've had we've seen kids really fall behind further than they've ever been before. And then to think that the focus isn't on reading and math and getting these kids caught up in, in some of these subject areas where they have missed so much, but now DEI is leading? This is the plate which with everything else is being served? Yeah, it's hard for me not to imagine that there's some... You know, it's so ubiquitous that there's there's actually um, something more sinister behind it. I don't want to you know get on my tinfoil hat here, but but it it occurs to me that an ed, you know an educated populace is not exactly something that is in the best interests of people that run stuff. Um, they would rather have people divided. They would rather have uh, a rising generation focused on. Comp- you know, competing with other tribes for resources um, or, you know, or um, and maybe it's not so important that they they need to have skills um, for success as individuals. Um, I I don't know, uh, but I but I do. It really does bother me that what I think is happening, even if that larger agenda is not at play, what is happening is that you have you have possessed ideologically possessed teachers and administrators union members and so on that are that are pushing um, kids to not function well in society their goal is not to have a child succeed in society their goal is to change society so they actually want the children to not be content to not be functional because in order to remake society, you need dysfunctional people that to, that want to change it. So I think that is definitely going on. Whether that's being orchestrated by some some larger uh, force, I don't know. But that's definitely going on, as far as I can tell. The interesting thing when I look at the private school and the public school situation with this is that you know in the private school, you've got parents who are paying sixty grand a year plus to send their kids to these schools. The chances of these children having gone to some type of high quality early childhood education is high. They're probably entering kindergarten, um, you know, reading uh, or at grade level or above grade level. And in the public school system, that is not the case that we do not have Mm -hmm. every student coming in at grade level or above grade level. You have, you know, real disparity in the classroom with students, Mm -hmm. some students coming in reading, some students never have held a pencil before. And I've volunteered in those classrooms and worked there and seen Mm -hmm. it. 
Um, and so I think, you know, in private schools, perhaps they have the luxury to explore some of this and, and, you know, the children can still read and write and are still, you know, able to function. In public schools, what we're finding is, and especially with COVID, you know, two years behind now, kids were behind already. And so, you know, when we have this generation of children now, K, one, two, three, who, you know, apparently are now, you know, going to be the new social justice warriors of the world, um, if they stay on this track, they also can't read. And so, you know, two thirds of the kids in America's public schools can't read. Uh, 75% of the people in America's prisons are functionally illiterate, are not capable, are, I mean, I, I quote all the time in Tennessee, the average reading level of a, a a man in prison is first grade and a woman is third grade. Um, and so, you know, my question continues to be, um, DEI was something that was on the plate. Now it is the plate. And where's the reading, Paul? Where's the function? Where's the focus on giving these children the ability to read so they can think for themselves? Because that's really where my concern lies. You know, if the children can't read and they're not able to think for themselves or earn look at data, right, as, as many of us during COVID had to do. We had to really, you know, kind of look at charts and statistics and data and try to come to some idea about what was happening in our country. You know, are our children going to have those skills if everything they're focused on is this DEI, you know? Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point because, you know, it, it is a way for the elites to, ma to maintain control, right? If you focus on this thing, which is really just this this very – you know, only only a certain group is going to be able to master it. And that group knows how to read and write already because, you know, they they have they come from this world where it's just, you know, it's taught to them as children by educated parents. Well, then they're in the position to maintain their elite status, whereas the public schools go to hell. Right. And they just get the tribal DEI there. and They actually don't have the baseline skills. So at that point, you have this kind of elite vanguard which knows the special language and all the intricacies of it and, and knows the rules of it so that they can take advantage of it correct and then you don't have an educated populace to function of democracy they can be led by the nose to do whatever the government wants them to do so i think that's you know unfortunately that's that's also very plausible to me so I, I, and, and that's kind of, and that's what we're seeing. You know, I think that's what parents across the country, Moms for Liberty parents are seeing and they're very concerned about it. And they're, you know, they, they want to get back in the classroom so they can kind of understand what some of this is, you know, what's happening and, and get a better handle on it. Um, anything else you gentlemen want to add? I just want to thank you for joining us today. I know that both of you, I mean, again, the fact that both of your, your article or that, you know, your letter went out on the same day that your article was published Paul and Andrew is is remarkable to me, and I think we have all been brought together uh, to try to do some important work here in in raising awareness about this issue. So um, I thank you both for watching over a hundred hours times, however many times you watch them of, of videos um, about this ideology in schools. I know that it's a labor of love. Um, any last thoughts? And then please tell us how can people keep in touch with you and learn more from you if they have questions. How do they reach out? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We actually have more years to watch. I think Paul started watching them. There, there, yeah, there's even yeah. more to do, uh, and I haven't, I haven't even watched them yet. But yeah, no, it wasn't fun watching all these, but but it was worth it in the end. Um, I, I'll just add this, and then I'll I'll tell how people can contact me or, or follow me. But this is really scary. And again, I, I want to reiterate, this is not just private schools, um, and it's not just education. 
this DEI playbook or the five words, you know, diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity, justice, this isn't everything now in society. This is in the government. This is in corporate workplaces. This is in the military. This is in the universities. This is in K-12. This is really terrifying. And the goal really is to tear down society. And the goal in elite K-12 education and elite universities is to train the kids, train the activists to tear down society. Uh, and I really do, I cannot, you know, say that enough that this is, this is really scary. This has to be stopped. Um, with that, I will stop and say, um, I have a little website called speakupforeducation.org, uh, which people can contact me through there if they're interested in. They can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Gutman. It's G-U-T-M-A-N-N, one C two N's. And then I've, I started a, a podcast recently uh, called Take Back Our Schools, which you can find on any kind of podcast network. Um, so Paul, sure. Um, I, uh, I, I feel that there's a, that there is a way to, uh, you know, engage with these things happening in schools. There's an opportunity for parents to, and, and the students themselves, I think, since so much of this, you know, DEI belonging and justice programming is focused around the assumption of a certain type of identity. I think that there is a real opportunity to have a kind of, wildcat strike where students in the public schools or private schools can can essentially say to the teacher my identity is not your business i will do this assignment but i will not adopt any of the things that you're asking me to assume about myself or any of my classmates and i have this sort of dream that there's a way to to refuse to adopt the significance of the identities that are being placed on them really we are all you know, human beings, children of God that have a transcendental relationship to God and to each other. And when you start to impose these identity categories on people and tell them that that's the most important thing about them and that dictates their destiny in life and how they should talk to each other, that is a that's an incredibly invasive thing to tell, not just a child, but any person. Uh, and I think that we we do have an obligation and a chance to stand up to that while it's happening. Um to me, it could be the kind of, you know, taking a seat at the lunch counter or burning the draft card kind of action. Uh, and I think that if enough people started to do that, it could create a real wildfire through the culture. And, and I think if that did happen, this would all end. Um, that said, something to think about. If you want to reach me and talk more about this idea, uh, I have an email at teachingfortruth at protonmail.com. Or also you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Paul D. Rossi. P-A-U-L-D-R-O-S-S-I. Awesome. Thank you, Paul and Andrew. I've been um, honored to, to get to know you, and I've enjoyed getting to know both of you over the past year. Um, I'm so proud of, of your work that you're doing, continuing to fight for kids in public school, in private schools, excuse me, and in public schools. If you want to read uh, the Wall Street Journal opinion piece, uh, it was published on February 11th. It's called Inside the Woke Indoctrination Machine. And in my closing thought, uh, joyful warriors around the country, um, really, truly, every child deserves to have their their full potential unfolded, whether that's uh, in the classroom or just in their lives. And this idea of groupthink um, is going to keep us from really getting to know and learning uh, about each individual student and how much they have to offer um, our country and the world. So um, I hope that we're able to work together to stop this madness, um, and we will keep bringing you uh, more information. Thank you again, Paul and Andrew, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Tiffany. Thanks, Tiffany.
What a great interview with Andrew and with Paul. Um, two great guys that are doing everything they can to bring awareness to some of the indoctrination that they have seen very clearly, obviously, happening in, in, in the schools that they are a part of. Um, and so this brings me to a COVID uh, lemonade moment. And I wanted to talk to everyone today. Um, you know, there are blessings to be found here. There are good things that have happened through all of the madness. And again, I, I never say that to, to make light of, of the lives that have been lost. I know that COVID has affected many people in, in many different ways. Um, but as we um, celebrate the end of, of this pandemic and we move forward as a country, um, there is lemonade to be made. And so I was reminded of that. I'm reminded of it often, actually, um, and, uh, and, and which is lovely um, because I'm getting to see all of these parents around the country rising up. And, you know, I, we've spoken before about the fact that we, you know, had this expert class in the United States, I guess, that we all kind of look to for guidance and advice. And obviously, um, a lot of those people have really let us down. Um, we have seen that there have been alliances that people have made with um, large corporations or that the teachers union has influenced um, decision making at the CDC level. Um, and so all of these things that we've been concerned about, but the lemonade is the fact that we're awake. Parents are waking up all over the country. And some of our elected officials have been leaders here. We've seen Ron DeSantis lead. We've seen Glenn Youngkin lead, right? Um, we've seen certain school board members leading in their school board. Um, if you have school board members that have been standing up for kids, make sure you're saying thank you to them. Um, this has not been an easy time for them. And so um, we have seen some leaders, uh, but we have also seen elected officials who are really followers and who just kind of seem like they're willing to do what's right once everybody else has already done it. Um, and uh, certainly, I think with a lot of the, the Democratic governors we're seeing in this past week that are lifting mask mandates, we're thrilled that the mask mandates are being lifted, but it's a little too late for a lot of parents. And so when I'm asked about 2022 elections and whether or not I think parents are going to play a part in those elections, the answer I always say is absolutely yes. Um, and, and so um, I'm always excited when we see parents running for office and we are seeing more and more parents running for office. I got sent a video of a gentleman from North Carolina. I didn't know that he was running for office at the time, um, but it was such an impactful, wonderful video. And so I'm going to play it right now. Um, his name is Brian Echeverria, and he is running uh, for office in North Carolina. Um, and I'm going to play this video of him speaking at his school board meeting um, in, in uh, Cabarrus County in North Carolina, and it's just wonderful. So let's listen to uh, Brian talk, and then I hope to have him on the podcast at some point. Um, but we'll definitely share his information if people would like to support him. Um, so here is Brian now. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your service. Obviously, you guys give of yourselves to, to do what you're doing. The community, I think we recognize that now that the political juice has been sucked out of the mask distraction, that we have to move forward. And one of the things I wanted to thank you for tonight was the resolution the non-discrimination resolution, the CRT deal, because it's, it's happening. And as a parent, I speak to other parents, there's a few things that we don't want. I'm biracial, I'm bilingual, I'm multicultural. The fact is, in America, in North Carolina, I can do anything I want, and I teach that to my children. 
And the person who tells my little pecan color kids that they're somehow oppressed based on the color of their skin would be absolutely wrong and absolutely at war with me. And I think that's the same for every parent. What the mask showed us is that the parents, the most powerful group of people in our country, that they're taking back the wheel. Now, obviously, we had to take the wheel back for the mask, but we're taking the wheel back from Washington all the way to Raleigh and into our local school board because CRT, all of that, the parents don't want it. It's a big fat lie. There's not one. If, there, if you believe in CRT, I want to tell you you're a liar because that means you look at your black neighbor and say that they're oppressed and you look at your white neighbor and say that they're evil, regardless of the experience that you've had with them. And we're not going to do that. The parents in the United States of America, right here in North Carolina and Cabarrus County, we know that's not true because we believe the lives we live. The fact is, I've been a business owner right here in North Carolina, and I deal with white people, black people, Hispanic people. My children deal with everybody. And the racism is only happening at the government level and on the media. The fact is, you have racists, and there's like, you can't even find them hardly. You just hear the stories about them. But this is, this is what we're dealing with. The parents are taking the wheel. I have an eight-year-old daughter who is absolutely dynamic, who can do anything, athletically, intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally. She is a dynamo. And I don't want a man swimming against her in the pool. The fact is, I don't want her playing against boys in soccer. I don't even let my sons rough her up. Do you think I'm going to let your son rough her up? This is what we're talking about. Policy going back to the parents. Because if you think people who love America are willing to fight for it, you haven't met parents yet. Because I'm telling you, parents will go further down any street than anyone who loves their country alone. My name is Brian Echeverria. I thank you for your service, and we're taking back the wheel. Thank you for being here. Whoa, Brian is on fire. And I speak, think he speaks a truth that many parents across this country share. Um, so thank you for your courage, Brian. Thank you for being willing to run for office. Um, I'm just looking, I just wanna be clear about what district it is. I apologize uh, that Brian is running in. Um, district 73 in the North, Car North Carolina House of Representatives. Um, he's got a beautiful family. Go check out his website at brianacheveria.com. Um, and uh, thank you, Brian, again, for being so brave to speak out. You know, parents don't want the CRT, and he's absolutely right. If you think that you've seen people fighting for this country, uh, you haven't seen parents yet. You have no idea. Um, so uh, 2022, the year of the parent, uh, we're running for office, we're fighting for parental rights, and we're supporting all of those um, that support us. So... Uh, Exciting things happening for kids in America, and the future is bright with people like Brian um, at the wheel. Next up, chat with Pat. Next up, we chat with Pat, Chapter Chair Coordinator for Moms for Liberty across the United States of America. favorite part of the podcast. That's right, it's Chat with Pat. And Pat has been out for a couple weeks, but she is back now chatting with us. And she has brought a special friend with her, one of our chapter chairs. So he hello, Pat. How are you doing today? 
Hello, I am well, and, and thank you for your patience with me as I've been absent, but you I'm have, back in you, class. Yeah, you're back, and I know you've been taking care of your family, and you do such a good job of that, and we all know that that's the first priority for all of us, right? We're doing this, we're, we're, we're fighting for the survival of America, for the future of our children, and um, I know that you've been taking care of your family. So how's everybody doing, uh, Pat? Oh, you doing we're all right? doing good. We're doing fine. And, and when we talk about taking care of our family, I have a special guest with us today. And who is that? <clears throat> I have brought our chapter chair from Lexington, South Carolina, Courtney O'Hara, to the show today. So um, when we talk about our why and our family, hopefully she'll talk to us a little bit about that. But welcome, Courtney. Hi, thank you for having me. Wonderful. So, Courtney, you are the chair of our Lexington County, South Carolina chapter. Is that correct? That is correct. And one you, of eight chapters. One of eight chapters in South Carolina. <clears throat> that is yes, awesome. And so recently, I want to hear all about you and about how you started with Moms for Liberty. And then we're going to dig in a little bit because I know that recent you took a recent trip up to your state capitol and you spoke in front of your House Education Committee. And um, I know that's something that's totally new for a lot of people. But let's chat first about your family. So tell us a little bit about you, Courtney, and about your family and, and how you got started with Moms for Liberty. Um, well, I am a stay-at-home mom. I have three kids, 14, 11, and 6. I... Um, I'm a homeschool mom now, but I, I used to pub be a public school parent about four years ago, and uh, I joined Moms for Liberty. I was actually, with all the, the mandates and things that were going on um, over the past two years, I actually attended my first, I guess you would say, political event. It was a anti-mandate um, for kids in our schools at the state house, and I was brought a friend with me, and I looked over, and I saw this woman who just looked fearless and she was wearing a navy blue shirt and it said moms for liberty on it and she was passing out information and she had her her sign that said we do not co-parent with the government and so i walked over to her and it was actually our berkeley county chair uh christy dixon okay and she was telling me about what and i asked her you know what is moms for liberty about and she goes oh well you know we're on we go to school board meetings and we're working for education and i was thinking well i'm a homeschool mom you know i i don't have a dog in this fight and she goes no 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 we go to all levels of government we hold all um of our legislators on all levels of government accountable and she was going over the mission with me and i thought well you know what that is something that I could do because I'm a homeschool, but a lot of other people had started homeschooling or were having to deal with the mandates in schools. And so she told me, she encouraged me to just go and do some more research. And so I went on to the Moms for Liberty site and I had prayed about it and started the application process with Amy Neese and she did the interview and it just seemed like it was going great. And I, I was looking for members and everything. And, you know, again, I'm a homeschool mom and I, I keep my circle small. And so at, at one point, I'm like, I don't know if I'll, I'll have enough people to start this chapter. And I prayed about it. And within two hours, I had about 40 people who I'd never met. Wow. Contact me. And I had my mem and that's how our chapter launched. It was amazing. That's and awesome. now we're almost 500 people. Wow. That's awesome. That's such a fan. Thank you for sharing that with us. Cause it's so interesting. You know, we're all coming together across the country, parents and, and, you know, we've, 
we have been asleep for a while. I think a lot of us had kind of just not realized, right? We had uh, we had mm-hmm. elected officials that you know we thought understood what you know the principles of freedom and liberty meant. And and you're right. During a lot of the the COVID stuff and the mandates, I think parents were just looking and saying, "My goodness, what is going on? I need to I need to get out at these meetings again." And so it's so fun to hear you know that it, it truly is a, a spirit of of community. And and I love the fact that you know you learned about it from another chapter here chair in South Carolina. I can't believe you have 500 members now. That's awesome. Yes. And I'm actually one of the smaller chapters. Our Charleston chapter and our York chapter are, they're close to a thousand members now. Wow. That's fantastic. So you have probably done a lot of new things. I know I have done a lot of new things since I, since we started Moms for Liberty and being a part of this. But one of the things that we do encourage moms to do is to participate in and defend their, their parental rights at all levels of government. And I know you took a recent trip to your state capital. So I want to hear all about this because, you know, Courtney and, and Pat, for a lot of our moms, this is they have not been political people. This is not something that has been a part of their lives, right? They've been making peanut butter and jelly and driving kids to school and working and just, you know, trying to make a living and, and keep their family afloat. And so this whole this whole idea of going and, and you know, um, letting your elected officials know how you feel about things is a little new to some of us. Yes, yeah, absolutely. that's right. Yeah, I mean, I hear from so many of our chapter chairs when I talk to them, they're like, I can't believe this is my life right now. <laughs> um, you know, they, they're, they're all, you know, moms, they're not political savants. And then they find themselves in this very political situation because they're having to talk to politicians about their family and how, um, you know, government has failed them. And when I watched Courtney Uh, stand and testify, I thought, wow, she's the embodiment of what we do at Moms for Liberty. And I thought, well, we've got to hear from her. So I'd like for you, Courtney, to tell us a little bit about your trip and what happened. Oh, sure. So we had a hearing. Um, Right now we have, I want to say about five or six different bills that are related to CRT that are in committee. And instead of going through each bill individually, the committee decided to lump all the CRT bills together and they're trying and open up public comment. And so they are having they were having three days of testimony and I was on the first day and the chapter chairs and I in South Carolina were going through these bills and we decided that. Um, we supported forty-seven ninety-nine the most, and that one is because it also a lot of the bills would not encompass charter schools or and would or would only re- be um, related to higher education, and so this one in, included all of them, and it also was, had the rare facet that it actually offers whistleblower protection because that is something we're facing is we have teachers that have examples and that are seeing this but they're scared to say something and so we actually started up our own email account so people could send in their emails and their experiences anonymously because that is they are just get feeling the pressure a lot in our districts throughout the state 
No doubt. And I so, have to, you know, Courtney, I just want to interject and say, I, I know the teachers are feeling so much pressure. Um, I watched a video the other day where there was a, a teacher that had actually spoken at a school board meeting and there were a bunch of union members sitting off to the side. And as she walked out, they made like a cutting, a cutting motion across their throat. Like she was like done. Or yeah. Oh, just awful. So, you know, it's, it, it, I love to hear that our Moms for Liberty chapters are supporting teachers and, and helping them to kind of come forward with some of this. Yeah, no. And, and that's the biggest thing because I mean, like I said in my testimony, I believe that 99% of our teachers are fantastic teachers and they're not doing anything wrong. And, you know, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch and I don't want to lose our good teachers yeah, either. Right. And totally so agree. that whistleblower protection, that whistleblower clause just was so important for me because I have a lot of teachers in my chapter and they would come to me and tell me, you know, this is happening and you would try to encourage them to speak out, but I completely understand they have a family to support themselves. Um, but so 4799 does that. It also is making sure that um, none of the tenants are avail are through any of the curriculum and any of the supplementation. It was interesting because our superintendent of our current superintendent of education said that she had a provazio where there is no CRT in the curriculum. However, in any they didn't have any sort of say on the supplementations or the visitors that they could bring in for the class. And so that's where we're finding that it's really kind of being snuck into the to the classrooms because there was no recourse yeah and so and a lot of the bills talk about you know and, and and you're right there are so so you have a lot of different crt bills and transparency bills in south carolina right now that have been proposed across the country there it, it's it's multiplied that many more right 50 states and so we've been tracking right. all these different bills there are lots of different um, pieces about them. You know, you like some of it, you don't like some of it. One of the things that it seems that's very effective is, you know, looking at, at, at bills that use the words, you know, not allowed to promote because then it does cover yes. a lot of different areas. But you're right. It's very important to read the bills and to really understand what it is that they're, they're saying so that when you speak, you can speak directly to them. So I love that whistleblower protection. That's great. And then you're right. There are some you know, there's always going to be some different rabbit holes that we're going to have to watch for, for, you know, activist teachers to, to not go down. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Tiffany, for I don't know how it is with other states, but in South Carolina, once every seven years, they review curriculum. And on those seven years, they give us 30 days public access. Yeah. And then and so we were allowed to go through every page of the book and some of the books that they had were just riddled with and the we sent the examples to the committee as well but i mean to say it wasn't in curriculum w would be um trying to be it would be a lie because it 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 was just i mean textbook after book and to be able to go through every single piece it was physically impossible even with 3000 members in our state to go through every single piece of curriculum in those 30 days and so this bill also requires that that website that they that they pay the domain for every year anyways 
be accessible to the public so we can still keep doing our research and making sure that it's being scrubbed the way it needs to be. That's awesome, Courtney. You know, and, and the truth of the matter is that with a lot of these curriculums, you know, you, it, there are going to be pieces that you're going to have to literally just be, that it will be taken out, that will not be used, right? <clears throat> and and so yes. being able to go through the curriculum is so important. And you're right, you, you know, 30 days, it's a, it's a very short window of time to be able to review all of that curriculum. And to your question about adoption processes really depends on the state and the cycle of their adoption and if they've changed their standards because if they've changed their standards then they have to you know look at the curriculum and make sure it aligns so it really depends from state to state um, and district to district how that happens mm-hmm. so you spoke you did such an awesome job I was incredibly proud of you I have to say I, I, I think I get sent videos of our mom speaking at school board meetings um, at committee meetings and it is just amazing I'm so incredibly proud and um, just, I learned so much from all of you watching the way that you handle people. You got asked um, a, a quite a few questions in a manner that was kind of surprising to me. So Pat, and I know you remarked on that, Pat. So the chair opened it up and they kind of went in a back and forth, almost debate style with you, Courtney. And, right. and, and that was interesting. Well, so tell us about that. Well, I was floored when I saw it, first of all, because, you know, I watch a lot of these hearings mostly from florida because that's you know where i was mostly involved but you know there is a sense of decorum about these um committee hearings and um i was floored when i saw how some of the elected officials um treated courtney uh most of the time when you come up to speak on behalf of a bill and a committee you come up and you give your your talking points, you know, what you want to say about the bill, whether you're in support of it or whether you're not in support of it and why. Um, you usually state whether or not you're speaking for yourself or whether you're speaking for an organization. And then you go sit down and the next person comes. But what transpired at this committee hearing um, was not that. And <laughs> that's I, that's putting it lightly. I want to play the clip before thought, Courtney comments, actually, Pat. Should we, tell me when I yeah. should play the clip. Yeah. Sure. Well, I just thought instead of watching a committee hearing, I was watching someone cross-examine a hostile witness or yeah. something. It was unbelievable. So let's listen so, to this now. You're going to hear from the chair of the committee who's going to ask if there are any questions. And then you're going to hear a gentleman who, who proceeds to basically cross-examine Courtney while she stands there in her mom's liberty shirt talking about, you know, we just want to know what our kids are learning in school. Like, is it Courtney, is it okay if I play it? Oh, sure. Go okay. ahead. Let's see if I can get this to play. Sorry. Uh-oh. Do you Here have questions of Ms. O'Hara at this time? Representative Rivers. Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm just curious. You said um, your group is Moms for Liberty. Liberty. You have eight chapters. What's the diversity of your group? We're a nonpartisan organization. I'm talking about diversity, not parties. Oh, uh, we, um, I don't have a statistic. We don't, we don't try to. Let me say it another make... way. Do you have any black members? Yes, sir. Okay. So you know yes. how many they are then? I, we don't keep a tally on the color of people's skin in our organization. But you have chapters and you know the members, so I'm just trying to see. I, um, we have a chapter chair for each member. And so I honestly, again, I can, so you, we you have 500. somewhere? 
again, we don't keep tally of people's skin color for our organization. No, I'm saying if you don't have a list, how do you know who's there? Oh, yes, we do have an, an organization. MomsForLiberty.org has a list of members. We also have Facebook pages, Telegram groups, email lists. Lexington County, which I am the chapter chair of alone, has about 500 members. Um, and we have, I believe, our York County chapter has close to 1,000, as well as our Charleston chapter. And then, again, we have um, five other chapters. So the 500 members, you're saying that there's at least 100 that are black? Um, I have not met every single member of our group. They, we, they're allowed to join via the website. And so if they've not come to a meeting yet or specifically told me of their skin color, I, I would not be So you know to everyone in the group? I have not personally met every single person in that group. Thank you. Yes, sir. But Ms. O'Hara, you have 3,000 members, and there is diversity in your group. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, okay. So, Courtney, uh, what was that like? That was an interesting exchange. I was shocked. I just, I thought, I, I really started doubting myself because maybe I wasn't understanding what he was asking, but no, you because he kept saying it again and again, <laughs> yeah. and I just didn't understand what that, what my organization had to do with these bills. I was speaking on behalf of like the teachers that I said that couldn't, well, even were then, scared Courtney, to have their voice heard. Yeah, even then. I mean, I just thought to myself, you know, we ha we have a diverse group of people across the country. I thought your answer in that we're not part we're nonpartisan. That's the truth. I mean, you asked about diversity. We don't tally people. We don't, you know, someone else asked me, they were like, you know, well, I'd really like to talk to like a Democrat member, independent member. I said, you know, I don't ask people when they join, like, what's your political affiliation? That's not a, a, a question that we ask them, right? If you're a parent... Uh, we, you have the right, you have the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of your children. If I don't agree with you, just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I, I'm not going to support you in that, right? So we all, right. and I just thought that was so interesting that he continued to do that. And I watched the committee and I saw some other people asking questions. No one as, as, um, as, as rudely, to be honest, as he was. And, and I, I think, you know, I don't know who to blame. I kind of want to blame liberal media right now. And, and because I think that they've just tried to do such a slant job on Moms for Liberty and to try to make us seem like somehow we're not a diverse group, which is sad. But I thought you handled yourself like so beautifully. Were you nervous? Oh my gosh, yes. Before I went up there, um, the the sponsor of the bill, RJ May, I was texting him and I, I mean, I, I said, are, you know, are you coming down here? He was in another committee meeting and I said, I'm scared. Yeah. I'm not a public speaker. I've never, I had never... This was outside my outfit. I didn't feel qualified because, you know, a few months ago I was a mom. Like I said, you know, my attire was leggings and, and you know, a different PJ top. And so I was dressed, trying to be dressed for comfort. And now here I am speaking to these attorneys and businessmen and women. It just I, I totally didn't feel qualified, but I knew that what we, we, somebody needed to say something. Absolutely. And I was just so honored that the other chapter chairs trusted me to represent our state and the organization, um, to be that person. But I mean, I did have a lot of support, uh, Michelle Luft and P.S. Burns, who are actually the authors of the South Carolina Parental Bill of Rights. They drove up from Charleston and were there supporting me. And um, R.J. May is also the, the main primary sponsor for that bill as well. And he did come down and he was able to testify. But, I mean, 
that's the thing about being able to go down and work with your legislators and build those relationships. Um, I, I do consider Representative May a, a personal friend now, and I had personal friends on that committee as well. And so you do get invested in these things. And I, I guess I was the one to be there because I would have not want anyone else to fe- be made to feel the way that I was made to feel. Well, I when think I was you being cross-examined. Yeah, I think you did a beautiful job, and um, I'm very proud. I mean, I think all of Moms for Liberty were very proud of you, and and so um, I know it's not easy to get up there and speak in front of a committee, but uh, our moms are doing it across the country, and you led and, and were such a beautiful example. Any advice um, for for moms that are, are planning on going to their state capital or are just starting, you said, you know, you're building relationships, any advice about building relationships with legislators? Because that really is the key, isn't it? You know, having those conversations and building those relationships. It is. And I would say if you don't feel scared or nervous, then maybe just make, just check yourself a little (laughs) bit and make sure that you're being humble because I, it, it keeps you honest. It keeps you genuine. And the, they can see that maybe the representative who was having a bad day uh, and took it out on me would, could everyone, he may not have been looking at me like I was a person, at least that's how he made me feel. But those other representatives did. And they were contacting me that night and they, and they were saying, you know, thank you for doing that. You were so, you were so brave and so strong. Good. And, and even um, there was another representative who was uh, has a different political view than I do, but she and I could ha- had a fantastic conversation, and we agreed on ninety nine percent of the things. I the approach I took was to attend the meeting that they were going to discuss these bills initially, and I addressed a lot of their questions and concerns from that meeting. And her and she it was funny because she goes, "Hey." I said that in the last meeting. I said, you did say that in the last meeting. And I think that it was about cameras in classrooms. I said, and I think that is a fantastic idea. She's like, I do too. I said, I know. And so we had a great, it was a great discussion. And it just shows that even though that you may be going in and feeling like you're just talking to somebody who you'll never agree with, you can find common ground with those people. And Pat, who I'll say, I mean, I think I have thick skin, but after after the, uh, the the verbal beating that I, I received from that one representative, Pat's were I called Pat and I was I was emotional and she said, you know, you took arrows for those kids. Yeah. And that right there, it's like, well, then it was worth it. Then I'm glad that it was me and not because it is making sure that those kids don't get those arrows in the classroom. That's exactly right. And that's why, you know, that's our why when we talk about our families and our children. So many of our chapter chairs tell me, you know, that's their why. And somebody has to stand up and 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 they're doing it and you're doing it. And I can't tell you how appreciative I am that you had that. I mean, that's bravery. Bravery is not doing what comes easy to you. Bravery is not um, doing what you're equipped to do. Bravery is when you're not equipped to do it and you get out there and it's scary and you do it anyway. Um, that's bravery. And so a lot of our moms and, and, and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and teachers are are reaching down and finding their courage. And I'm just so grateful um, that you're with us. I'm so grateful that 
for this for for such a time as this, as so many of them are saying. Um, and you know, when you look back on this, you know, the day after, and you're still licking your wounds, but then when you get a little bit further away from it, and you look back on it, and you realize, wow, you know, I got through that somehow better than I thought I did. I know you made that uh, remark to me. Um, and it, it just, when you're in the moment, and you're being attacked, and you go to that brainstem place, yeah, and then so you true. come out, yeah, and then you come out, and you look back, you know, a few days later, after you've gotten over the shock of the attack, and you realize, wow, you know, I I did that, I got through it, um, I, I believe that um, our parents are stronger, they're strong, they're intelligent, and they have more tools than they realize that they have. That's what I was going to say so to proud you. Of them. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say you yeah. said not equipped. I think everybody's equipped. That's the thing. We're just out of practice, right? But we've got to get right. the swords out. We've got to get the swords up. We have to realize that everything that we need to fight for our kids in this country, we have already inside of us. And we just have to find it and we have to hone it. I want to remind uh, everyone, if you're speaking at your school board meeting or you're speaking at a committee meeting, go back and watch it again. I know that's going to be hard for some people. It's hard to watch yourself. I get it. But it'll first of all, it's going to make you better because you're going to probably pick up on a few things you could have done differently, whether it's the way you stand or what you wore or the, you know, the, the kind of the way you opened. But you're, I think what you'll also find is that you're going to be proud of yourself and you're going to say, gosh, I think I did better than, you know, I think when you look back, you, you'll see you did better than what you remember in the moment because you're right, Pat. When you're there speaking, you know, it's easy. You're in your brainstem and you're, and you're nervous. So it's, it's easy to be hard on yourself. So parents, like, just know you've got everything inside of you. You're the best expert uh, of your child. And you absolutely can stand in front of anyone and speak to any of these bills or, or about any of these things that are happening with our kids with the ultimate authority. So Courtney, uh, you are a hero to us. Thank you for being so brave to represent South Carolina children and parents. I don't think your chapters could have found a better person to have them speak to this bill and to represent them at the state capitol. So well done. Thank you yeah, so much. Well done. And I tell you, um, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're hearing what Courtney, um, how she's standing up, how she's empowered to uh, fight for the children and you want to be part of that, um, consider joining your local Moms for Liberty chapter. And if there's not one in your county, by all means, go to momsforliberty.org, click start a chapter, and we're here to help you get one started in your area. Absolutely. Pat's the best. I can't say it better than that. Courtney, thank you for joining us today for this chat with Pat. And Pat, thank you for bringing a chapter chair with you. I think it was really informative. I hope that next week we'll have a new chapter chair to speak with and we can hear more about their chapter. Thank you for having thank me. You. Oh, thank you, Courtney. Have a great day, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. As always, we want to thank Pat Blackburn for her effort supporting joyful warriors around the country. And that's going to do it for this week's Joyful Warrior podcast. Join us next time. United We Stand, our children, our choice, our future.